0: Double shifters were entering a new phase of the pandemic. Roughly 28 million more children are now eligible for a COVID vaccine. This is a huge deal for so many families. But the Kaiser Family Foundation found that about a third of parents of five to 11-year-olds plan to wait a while to see how it's working before getting their child vaccinated. And even if you're ready for your kid to be first in line, it's important to understand why others, including maybe some of your close friends and family, are conflicted or have anxieties. While we're going to dive into some of this and much more, this episode is not a substitute for direct medical advice from your own clinician. It is going to be a judgment-free zone. This is The Double Shift, the show that challenges the status quo of motherhood in America, and I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. So Angela is still working really hard on her book, so she couldn't join us today. But my guest this episode, Dr. Liz Baltaro, is also a dear friend of mine. She is a board-certified family physician and a medical director, and a mom of three young kids. I wish everyone had a mom friend as great as Dr. Liz. I've known Liz for a couple years, and we text or send Marco Polo video messages basically every day. Hey, Catherine. Sorry for the uh,
1: abrupt ending yesterday. I felt like I had so many things I wanted to tell you.
0: Hi, Liz. I am taking a little jaunt to your house to drop off the booster seat. Sorry I hadn't returned it to you sooner.
1: Hey, um, hopefully you can hear me okay
0: because I'm like trying to cook dinner here and pack lunches and we just got back from the beach. We saw eight rainbows, which was just like totally epic for me, felt like a very good sign in my life. We work out together, we go on family vacations together and we put each other down for emergency school pickups. I will never forget when I found out I was having twins and was in complete shell shock and disbelief and she was so excited for me and so soothing and supportive because she also has twins who are now 7 this connection has really bonded us for life she's the one i send pictures of my kids weird rashes to she's the one i called when i thought that one of my twins might have swallowed a battery he did not And she's the one I share my concerns with that one of my kids might have a speech delay. And over the last 20 or so months, she's also been my go-to source on all things COVID. For most of the pandemic, she's been testing, advising, and treating COVID patients, including kids, in an outpatient setting. I've talked through my own family's exposure scares with her, gotten her take on new studies, asked her opinion on conflicting public health messaging, And while she's not my personal doctor, I know I am so lucky to have a friend like Liz in my life. Most people don't have a friend like this. And while the vast majority of kids under 12 have health coverage through private insurance or Medicaid, that doesn't mean their parents and caregivers have access to a trusted healthcare professional that is this available for questions and so helpful. So Dr. Liz is going to take it slow, clarify confusing things about kids and the Pfizer COVID vaccine, and she's going to help us dig through some of the information overload, just like she's done for me. She's also going to address some of your questions and vaccine anxieties that I've heard from our Double Shift community. And I hope that this conversation with Dr. Liz can be demystifying and maybe even calming as we enter this next stage of the pandemic. And out of this conversation, I think you'll also hear an acknowledgement that we are all just trying to figure this out while we're wrapped up in our own and society's expectations around motherhood and the weight and, and really the fear we all feel around how we can keep our kids safe. So, Dr. Liz, how do we know that the Pfizer vaccine and all the other vaccines that will eventually be approved for kids 5 to 11, like, we can say they're safe, but how do we know that they are safe?
1: Yeah, I mean, at this point, many, many people have gotten those vaccines. And so I feel like we have pretty good evidence just through that. Um, In addition, we have a really rigorous process for vaccines becoming approved in our country at this point in America's history. And so I trust that process. Um, We have really good FDA and CDC panels that really review the data. And it's not an easy process for these companies to get approval. Um, They do use scientific data and that is available too. um, And I've been looking at that. And I mean, frankly, so far, they seem very safe to me. Nothing is scary
0: to me. I got this great question that I want to share with you from Mm -hmm. a mom who's also named Elizabeth. And my question
1: is that I'm on the fence about vaccinating my five-year-old in this first initial rollout because what I've seen is based on the data, the likelihood of severe complications from COVID is so rare that the sample size in this trial wasn't large enough to detect any serious risk reduction in serious complications. So my husband and I are leaning towards waiting until there is enough safety data to decide. What would you say to similar parents like me? What advice do you have? Yeah. I mean, first of all, she sounds like a really well educated and amazing mother who has really done her research. Um, it is true that the sample size right now for the trials for kids is smaller than I wish it was. You know, it's about 2,200 kids. And I wish that we had a number that was in the tens of thousands, and we don't yet um and that study was looking at the antibody rate and not necessarily about keeping kids out of the hospital or avoiding the serious complications but um you know i think for me it is more about thinking about risks and benefits comparatively um which is what i do all day as a doctor um you know i'm all the time kind of playing this game of ping pong in my mind with thoughts about the risks and the benefits and weighing this and that. And to me, since we know COVID is still a big problem right now in the country, the risks and the benefits, if you weigh them, even though it is still, you know, a bit uncertain for some people, I feel like it still weighs on the side of being more beneficial than it would be harmful.
0: So, what you're saying is that you, based on all the available evidence, the risk posed from getting a covid vaccine is far less than the risk of getting covid right, okay, in terms of complications or other um, serious health conditions right and and that applies also for children,
1: yeah, from in my eyes, it it will apply to children. That's right. I mean, I know that Many of us feel like it's a really benign illness for kids, but there are physicians everywhere in the country who will tell you, you know, kids do end up not doing well with COVID. There are, you know, the risk is not zero. And so I feel like even though the risk seems small, I mean, it's really hard for people, I think, when they're comparing really small risks to really small risks per se, but still I feel like, you know, we have this obligation to do everything we can to try to help stop the virus and um, not just on an individual level, but also for the society too. And even so, um, you know, I I still, I feel like I've seen enough to worry about my kids, even though the risks are small.
0: So have mRNA vaccines been studied in children as much as adults? At this point, I would say no. So does that give you pause or concern in terms of, kids receiving mRNA, which is not a new technology, but it is newly employed in these vaccines? Like, Does that give you additional concerns that it hasn't been studied as much in children?
1: It doesn't to me. I think that's probably based more on my scientific knowledge of how messenger RNA works. It just is really a kind of, you know, it does one thing. You could say a one-trick pony, it goes in the cell, it makes protein, Um, you know, it really doesn't do much else and then it's gone. So to me, you know, I think that it it really doesn't. I mean, I think the studies were more about looking at the dose that would be appropriate for kids and to me it doesn't really cause a lot of concern in terms of the dangers. I mean, I think the dangers primarily are the inflammatory response that kids have to the vaccine which you know, I think it's really smart for parents to be concerned. And I relate to that. You know, I think everything feels novel right now. But to me, it isn't a big concern.
0: So the mRNA technology itself doesn't, based on, you describe it as like a one trick pony. So can you just sort of give us a breakdown? So how we know mRNA doesn't like stay in your body or do weird things to you in 10 years? Like, how do we know that?
1: It degrades. It degrades. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I recognize is that our immune systems are exposed to particles and proteins and, you know, various things in our everyday lives. And that's a very healthy thing. And our immune systems are responding to things constantly. And so to put a little bit of something in the human body, it it, to me is not that different from what our immune systems are built for and are doing all day long, every day. Um, You know, the small amount that we give in vaccines, in my mind, is really similar to what our immune system and, and kids' immune systems are facing on a regular basis.
0: That's really interesting. One thing you just said is you said everything feels novel right now, you know, in terms of like, you know, we're faced with decisions about getting a vaccine for a virus that we'd never heard of two and a half years ago. And can you think of an example of how that has sort of played out in your interactions with your patients, like really people feeling overwhelmed with the newness of all these situations and decisions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I have seen
1: as a physician just like um, many people are probably witnessing that um, there's a lot of stress right now in our society and a lot of mental health burden and a lot of challenges um, that people are experiencing. I mean I think mental load and decision fatigue come to mind and just, a lot that's going on and I think that it is even you know there's just layers upon layers of hard decisions and navigating and you know a a lot of complex decisions that have to be made on an individual basis because everybody's own health and own family situations are unique and the guidance has left a lot up to individuals and people have done it differently and and that's okay I mean I have a lot of respect for that and I think it's also very hard for people.
0: Yeah. We'll be right back after a short break with Dr. Liz to talk more about how the stresses of motherhood impact our decisions around COVID safety, and we'll get more of your burning questions answered. So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Cohousing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash thedoubleshift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how co-housing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash shift It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We're building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, it's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to the doubleshift.com/slash join. Membership starts at five dollars a month. Thanks. Okay, so Liz, one thing I love about you is that you're not on social media. <laughs> it's one of your one of the many things I love about you. So when I talk about something on Instagram, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm sure that's really interesting, which is great. So um I think that so many caregivers have, as you've mentioned, been feeling totally overloaded with information, really worn down by decision fatigue, and I've also heard from double shifters it can be hard to know who to trust because also things change so often, like masks, no masks, like this, that, you know, outside, inside, delta, no delta, you know, all these things. And so I have also seen that there are tons of self-proclaimed experts, quote-unquote experts, on social media and who have media platforms. How do you recommend that people make their own decisions and find trustworthy sources of information on kids and vaccines when, you know, as you said, so much has been left up to individual decision-making? I mean, I think—
1: Skepticism and wanting to do research is a great sign of intelligence. And I actually, you know, have grown up as a doctor to respect shared decision making. And as long as I've been a doctor, there's been the internet. And so I feel like um, I'm really used to my patients wanting to do their own research and wanting to gather their own information. And I actually. I like that. I mean, I think it really shows that patients are engaged in their own health, that they care, and I respect that a lot. I think it is really challenging to to know what is a good source of information and data and what is not. You know, we live in an era where you can use Google Scholar and the internet and you can actually find studies and really good journal articles with a web search. How do you know what's good information and not? I mean, I think for me as a scientist, like really going back to the original data is important. So not just looking at a news article, but actually going to look at the source. And obviously not everybody is well-equipped to kind of do that and look at the numbers. You know, in science, we use the lingo N, which just kind of means like the size of a study, which I think makes a big difference. You know, a study that is only 50 people is not comparable to something. I really personally like to see data that's in the tens of thousands. Um, You know, that makes me feel a lot more comfortable. And there are also different types of studies and data out there. So, I mean, personally, I usually recommend that people go to a trusted source. And for... Pediatrics and and vaccines, um, you know I like to recommend and use the American Academy of Pediatrics website. We have such good societies in the United States. The CDC is an excellent repertoire as well, so I recommend and share some of those sites.
0: So, you know, what you're saying is like, look at the studies, look at the sources and not just like someone describing something in an Instagram video of their, their take on it or what they have read or what they've heard, (laughs) even if it sounds convincing, like, you know, sort of be skeptical about where they're getting their information, you know, that sort of thing. Like, and it's hard because like, sometimes I think, especially after this last more than a year and a half, we just like want someone to just, make it easy for us and make a decision for us about things. And like, so having all this information can really be overwhelming. But I I really love the advice of going like as close to the source of the information as possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think if people are feeling overwhelmed by it, I mean, this is where it really comes in handy to have a good relationship with a personal physician or doctor or nurse practitioner or clinician. Um, I mean, I think having a primary care clinician who you trust is really helpful because you can put it in their hands. And I think... Research has shown that, you know, the number one person that can influence somebody's decision about the COVID vaccination is their personal physician. Not everybody has a, you know, really in-depth relationship with a personal clinician, but um, that is a great thing. And, you know, I think if it's too much for people, asking their own personal clinician is advisable as well. It can be
0: as simple as that. Yeah. And you feel like doctors around the country should all be prepared to be having, answering these questions and having these conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a burden on them.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, we are prepared. And I also think that it says a lot. Doctors are getting themselves vaccinated and they're, you know, doctor, my doctor colleagues. I don't know anybody who is not vaccinated. And I also don't know any physician mothers who are not just chomping at the bit to get their kids vaccinated right now. Of course, we don't want to, we want the process to be very rigorous, just like anybody else. But I feel like we're all really anxiously awaiting the vaccine approval because we've all been coming home to kids. And, you know, I think the biggest fear as a physician during the pandemic has been not so much that we would get the virus ourselves, but that we would transmit it to somebody else
0: our own children being one of those people. Yeah. That's a lot of stress that um, healthcare workers and mothers have carried for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing I, I wanted to tackle with you is that, you know, many people, especially in communities of color and communities who've had low access to quality healthcare— You know, may have had bad past experiences and they may not be as trusting of medical authorities. So, in your work in community health, you have had many patients that fit into these categories. And so, as a white doctor, how do you address vaccine uncertainty in groups that are coming at it with really legitimate skepticism um, in terms of their experiences with medicine and medical authorities?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think for me, it's about being respectful and approaching people with curiosity to try to find out what their individual reasoning is and where they're at on on an individual level in all circumstances. But I'm very much aware that that factors in and that there's, you know, very legitimate reasons to distrust public health and to distrust our healthcare system in general. And some people have had bad experiences themselves with healthcare. I think another factor too is that sometimes people have had a bad experience with a prior vaccine. And so that can taint, or they know somebody who did have a rare complication. So even if something is a really small chance, you know, if it, has affected someone you love that can really make you feel differently about it on an emotional standpoint and i think the same is true for you know if your ancestors have had a bad experience in the healthcare system then that understandably will make you feel emotional and different about the healthcare system yeah
0: so um i got this message from a double shifter and i thought it really
2: encapsulated so much Hi, my name is Tricia, and the thing I feel really unresolved about is getting the vaccine for my three-year-old. I'm like the most positive about vaccines of anybody I know. I'm such an advocate for it. My husband and I are triple vaccinated. My parents are triple vaccinated. Um, The biggest reason is that my husband is an ICU doc, and so he sees the toll of this disease every single day. Like, I so desperately want us to be in a different place than we are now. And I know that vaccinations are the way to get us there. And even I am hesitating about like, oh, we go get her the vaccine the first day it's available. Like, do I wait and see something? Even though I know it's been through months and months of clinical trials and everybody involved in this, like, this is the Super Bowl of epidemiologists and everybody who work, does this kind of work. Like, And yet I still feel hesitant. And like, Man, if I feel hesitant, like, what do you do about the people who are vaccine hesitant at baseline or anywhere else on the spectrum of of anxiety about this? I don't know how to get through or past that. I know that I will, but it's just, I still feel so, so much anxiety about it.
0: What do you say to this mom and other moms who are just having anxiety about giving their kids the vaccine?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean I again I feel like it is a it is a wonderful thing. I think that just shows how much love that people have for their children that they are feeling this sense of anxiety. You know, what would I say? I mean, I would probably just approach her again with a lot of understanding and empathy and compassion and try to find out more about what specifically is making her feel anxious. And I would imagine that it's the fact that her She's worried that her child will have one of these rare complications and that, you know, there's, again, a relatively rare chance that her child would be sick from COVID. And so trying to reconcile these two, like, very rare things in her mind is really difficult.
0: Yeah. So that this ties into my next question, which I think there is a lot of pressure on moms in general all the time in this country to be a, quote, good mom. And that makes moms really worried about doing the, quote, wrong thing. And this is all coming to a head in some of this vaccine decision-making. And so how do you feel like this plays out, you know, with this vaccine anxiety?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I wish there weren't such tremendous pressures. I mean, I think that... It goes back to the mom guilt, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of (laughs) my favorite topics. (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) That I wish, um, you know, I wish it didn't all fall kind of on mothers culturally. And it makes me think of one of my close friends who was pregnant um, at the time that vaccines became available to adults. And it was back at the time where we didn't have a lot of data. You know, now it's pretty certain that um, the risks for women who are pregnant to get the vaccine are definitely outweighed by the benefits of the vaccine. But back when we didn't know, you know, people were navigating. And again, I knew pregnant physicians who were, you know, not hesitant at all to get the vaccine. Again, just knowing what we know about messenger RNA and not feeling the same sense of fear um, from a scientific standpoint. Um, And yet, you know, navigating this with a friend of mine who was feeling a lot of trepidation. And she was really expressing that she just really felt like if something did happen, even if it was unrelated to the vaccine, that she would feel horribly guilty and she would feel like in her mind, it was connected. And I think that goes back to this thought of you know as mothers like we just take it on ourselves that if something bad happens to our children or if things are not the way that you know we think that they should be that it's our fault in some way and that's something i also try to emphasize a lot in my practice of medicine i mean so many things happen actually um i'm also thinking of uh you know another case where a child had a broken bone complete you know total accident nobody's fault um, these things happen all the time. And I recognize, and especially now more than ever, that I'm a mom, you know, what parents need to feel in that moment is being reminded that, you know, it's not their fault. Because I think when something traumatic happens, that's the first thing. And especially as moms in our country, that is the first thing culturally that we think of is that it must be our fault in some way. And we do feel guilty, even if there is no scientific connection. <sighs>
0: Dr. Liz really gets at the heart of it right there. Double shifters, I know you're worried. Even if you aren't concerned about the safety of the vaccine, for probably most of us, being a parent or caregiver in 2021 means you are in a constant state of worry. This worry feels really real to me too. As Delta was surging and I was resigned to the reality that I was going to send my first grader marching back into school, and there was just very little I could do to personally make sure he wasn't going to get COVID at school, I became just paralyzed with fear over my toddler's safety, something that I felt like I could actually control. My mind was in overdrive that they were just one off-balance step at the top of the stairs from a scary trip to the emergency room. Or one carelessly placed knife away from losing an eye, or one unlocked playground gate away from getting hit by a car. Because I thought if I was hypervigilant enough, all of these toddler safety concerns felt like something I could control or prevent. Because so often we feel that if something bad happens on our watch, or because of a decision we've made, that, that feeling floods in. That feeling that it's all our fault. COVID's not your fault. It just is. And you and I, and I'd venture to say most people, are just doing the best we can. When we come back, Dr. Liz answers more of your burning COVID vaccine questions and talks about how... As a family medicine doctor, she thinks about how our personal decisions can impact our community. We're back with Dr. Liz Baltaro, a family medicine physician. And as you may know, we talk a lot on this podcast about how one of the strongest values in American parenting is around the idea that you should do whatever is best for your kid and your family. Like, like it's all about what's best for you as an individual or your kid as an individual. And I posed this question to Dr. Liz about how we can think about vaccination in relationship to not just what's best for us or our kid, but how we can think about it in terms of what's best for the whole community. Yeah, I mean, when we think about other childhood
1: vaccinations, certainly when you think of it on an individual level, it, you know, these days we don't have high prevalences of a lot of the diseases that, I mean, thank goodness we don't. And it's because of vaccination program that we don't. But I mean, there are um, parents that are choosing not to get other childhood immunizations. And in fact, you know, COVID has unfortunately gotten us behind in our immunization efforts for children on a whole. But the act of immunization is not just on an individual. You know, it's one of the few things we do on a preventive level that is for the society. And that is a big part of it, you know, especially now that we have um, kind of beaten down other diseases so that we don't have a high prevalence of other illnesses like polio or measles uh, rubella i mean i'm fortunate i have never seen a case of measles or rubella in my career um you know i have seen chickenpox <laughs> um i have a varicella i have seen i've i've actually um you know seen people who had polio but i have never seen a child with polio in my medical career um so i think that just goes to show you that Many of those illnesses are something that we've worked really hard to protect ourselves against as a society. And fortunately, we've been successful, but it's because of the efforts on an individual level collectively. And I mean, I do think on some level that it is going to be necessary to get children vaccinated against COVID-19 as many people as we possibly can get vaccinated against covid-19 in order for us to kind of go back to
0: how things were pre-pandemic so it's one like meaningful way that we can all contribute to sort of <laughs> going going back to whatever way that it was in terms of. Yeah, I guess you yeah. can view it. It
1: is an act of social activism on some level. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there is a moral and ethical responsibility to, to not just think about yourself in a situation like this and to think about the other people kind of downstream, you know, and the longer that we have unvaccinated people um, or the more unvaccinated people that we have, the more possibilities that we're going to have for the virus to continue to spread, for the virus to continue to mutate. And I mean, I tell people all the time in my practice, I wish I had a crystal ball. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, None of us have a crystal ball. And so you just don't know if you don't, you know, if you don't do what you can to protect yourself, if you could be spreading the virus down the road and if it could mutate. You know, I, I just feel like if we're going to have the best chance to stop the virus, then we do need as many people vaccinated as possible.
0: That's a interesting sort of message related to the parents who want to, who are not anti-vax, they're not anti-science. They may be vaccinated, but they want to wait and see. They want to hold off for some weeks or months or some longer amount of time to to move forward, you know, how do you feel about the sense of urgency to not not wait three months, not wait six months, or nine months, or a year?
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, unless your child is really completely isolated and living, you know, without exposure to any outside people, which is, you know, very rare, there is still a chance that the virus will continue to spread. And so, I still feel a sense of urgency because I feel like at this point uh, many of our children are less isolated than they were earlier on. Many of them are in school and I want them to stay in school and I just also feel like it's it's for the well-being too. I mean a lot of children I think need that socialization for development and for their own mental health as well and the longer that we continue to kind of stay in a society that's restrictive for children, you know, that has drawbacks for them. And I do feel a sense of urgency,
0: yeah. Yes, a sense of urgency. I feel it too. We've been through so much trauma and turmoil and disruption over the course of the pandemic. Sometimes it can feel like nothing we can do will make it better. But kids' vaccination can really help us get our lives back on track. Vaccinating can help us end long-term school disruptions. It can mean not missing days of school and work over waiting for COVID test results over just a regular runny nose. Maybe it will make masks in schools eventually unnecessary. This can be a concrete step to making things more livable for families. Okay, Dr. Liz, back to some questions from the double shift community. I got a version of this question from so many people. Basically, the question is, what is the deal with the different dosage levels? And what if I have a really big 11-year-old or a really small 5-year-old? Should I wait to vaccinate or seek a different dose?
1: Yeah, I can I can completely understand where that would that question would factor in. Um, So the doses that they are studying now for the five to 11 year olds are a third of the dose for 12 and up and the 12, 12 year olds, you know, and up, they are all getting the exact same dose. And, you know, I'm um, you know, it it's not the same as the flu shot, but just to make a parallel um, with influenza, there is a high dose shot for older adults that's available. There's also kind of a regular flu shot. And actually there's a smaller dose that we give to kids with flu shot as well. So, I mean, to me, this concept of um, different vaccine doses is something that we do all the time in medicine. Um, Is there an exact science to exactly what dose we give to what person. I mean, we they are currently age-based doses because that's what's been studied. Um, and I, I trust it. I mean, if you look actually at the study for the messenger RNA vaccines for 5 to 11-year-olds, actually it was kind of stunning data that they used a third of the dose and the antibody levels were actually higher than the... 12 to 16 year old, um, which was pretty incredible to me. I was not expecting that um, because a third of the dose. I mean, it just goes to show you that um, the that younger kids have a really active and and responsive immune system. So that was kind of awesome to see on some level. Um, you know, I think I think everybody's immune response is going to be different. And yes, I think it's healthy to question that and to wonder. You know, if you have a really big um 11 year old should they be getting a higher dose or hold out uh, but personally i feel like the answer is that i would you know i would not stress over the perfection of it and i think again just going back on we know these vaccines are safe and effective um it seems like they are very effective even at the smaller doses and so not not being worried necessarily about the specific immune response which I don't think anybody can really know exactly on a you know microscopic level what their body is doing but to just have faith that you know it, it is going to be better than
0: again that risks and benefits going to be better than the alternative right so you would say if you if someone had sort of an individual concern they wanted to wait for 6 months or 9 months to their kid was eligible for the next dose up, you would recommend to just get the dose available to them.
1: Yeah, I would recommend going ahead and yeah. doing what you can to protect yourself. Yeah.
0: I have gotten a lot of questions about myocarditis and boys. Yes. <laughs> First of all, what is myocarditis? So
1: myocarditis um, you know, pretty simply put, is a inflammatory um, condition of the heart muscle.
0: And how common is it as a side effect from the COVID vaccine?
1: It is not very common at all. There, the best data I've seen about the prevalency of myocarditis was from a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that came out recently, and it was out of Israel. And The prevalence is essentially, um, so it goes up after second shots. And what we know right now is, you know, it's highest in boys in that sort of 12 to 15-year-old age group. And it is in the realm of about 1 in 25,000. For girls, it's about 1 in 100,000. I think it's hard for people to digest numbers that big. Mm -hmm. I don't know if your listeners are going to be feeling that, but I know I have trouble with those big numbers. So I personally like to think about things relative to the risk of dying in a car crash because Mm -hmm. that is not zero and it's something that I feel like many of us in America do all the time. And Mm -hmm. so we can kind of relate to that. Like, oh yeah, there's a risk that is something I live with on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. and I you know, expose my children to that. but you know we have to often most of us have to drive and get around to do things. And so um that risk for a child in America is roughly about one in ten thousand. Also really small. That's in a year, a year's time, um, the risk of death of dying in a car accident. And again, you know, not zero. And so I feel like when something is a lot smaller than that, maybe that helps put it in perspective.
0: It, it's also generally not a fatal condition. That's right. Yeah. And so if someone got myocarditis, like what, what are the symptoms? Like what would a parent expect from a kid who has myocarditis?
1: Yeah. Typically it's chest pain, you know, discomfort um, and chest pain because the heart muscle is inflamed. And so um, sometimes it can, you know, cause like a little bit of shortness of breath or some difficulty with exercising, but um, the, the cases of myocarditis I've seen have all presented with pain and discomfort. And, you know, typically you would go to a doctor and they would run a blood test um, and it would look for a cardiac enzyme that's kind of released when the cardiac cells are having trouble. And that would be one of the diagnostic signs of myocarditis. Um, You know, the different, the heart has also a sac around it, which can get inflamed, which is called pericarditis. And these things happen. I mean, pre covid um, People were getting myocarditis or pericarditis from viral other viral infections. So it's not, you know, a unique situation with COVID that um, myocarditis happens. It happens with a lot of other viruses and viral illnesses. Again, very rare, but it happens. Um, and there are other inflammatory conditions. And we, you know, believe that it is the inflammatory effects from the virus. And that is likely what's happening with the vaccine too, that it's kind of producing a
0: similar inflammatory response. Again, very rare. And also the risk of myocarditis from COVID is actually higher than the risk of getting myocarditis from the vaccine. That's true right now. Yes. Yes.
1: And so to me, I feel like as a mother... You know, I would not be happy if one of my children developed myocarditis, but I would also not be terrified or scared of that. And it certainly doesn't stop me from wanting to get my kids vaccinated against COVID. Um, I feel much more uh, concerned and uncertain about kind of the unknown future and unknown risks of the virus spreading than I do about myocarditis.
0: Here's a question from someone from our Instagram my kid has had the virus. Where do we stand on natural immunity? And sort of the follow-up question is, if your kid has already had COVID, which is millions of children in the U.S., yes. should you still get them vaccinated?
1: Yeah, I'm th- I love that question, actually, because as far as vaccine hesitancy goes, I would say that's been kind of the number one thing that I've faced as a physician is, you know, people that are feeling uncertain. And I do feel like if you, you know, I, I can understand where that question comes from because if you've had COVID or you know your child has had COVID, you know there likely is some antibody response to that, and um, in addition, there they may be more likely to have some inflammation evoked by the vaccine too. So I feel really. Um, you know, compassionate when I hear that question. And also, you know, what a a tough thing to have lived through the pandemic and have had COVID and lived through that as well. Um, And I think there's also this sense maybe of, you know, if I had COVID and it was really mild, then, you know, what am I scared of? Right. You know, why get the vaccine? Um, Because obviously, you know, it it didn't really affect me that much or, um, you know, maybe it won't again. Um, You know, I think my biggest feeling of that is that, the vaccine likely offers different protection than the virus does. And we also don't know for most people, um, you know, exactly what variant of the virus they had and when. I think now, you know, most people most of the cases we probably know are Delta at this point. But still the virus may mutate again. And protecting yourself against more of the virus it is going to offer just another layer essentially so even if you've had covid even if you had your own antibody response the vaccine is going to amplify that it's going to increase it and it's going to make it stronger and so i still recommend it even when people have had covid but i also feel really understanding and uh, of where they're coming from with their concerns and i think too it's worth talking about you know that there may be a higher chance of having some side effects from the vaccine. Again, you know, your, your body's reacting to that, and that's a good sign. You know, it's good when your body has some side effects to a vaccine because then you know it's really working and your immune system is really responding.
0: So this is a question for when vaccines are available for under fives but also could apply to the flu shot, et cetera, should we wait four to six weeks after other vaccines before getting a COVID vaccination? We have our four-year-old shots coming up.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, too. And I think a lot of people are still in the mindset that they need to space vaccines 14 days apart from the COVID vaccine. But actually, the CDC changed that um, so that's no longer the case where you have to space out vaccines. And I have ordered vaccines together now for people um, on the same day, um, especially now that we're entering flu season. And I would say no, you know, I, I don't think that you need to do that. Again, I think that's linked to that scientific knowledge of we are exposed to lots of proteins and viruses and things in our day to day lives. And so in the course of a day, you know, especially in pre-COVID times when we weren't masking, we were probably exposing ourselves to more than what is in for vaccines. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <That's>, <laughs>
0: yeah. I love that. I, I feel like whenever you go and get your babies vaccinated and they're like, here we go with the like the mega needles all at once, you're like, how can this be okay? But I'm still going to do it. So that is so interesting to think about is like, yeah, we're exposed to so much all the time. That's just part of life. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty traumatic, I think, as a parent yeah, exactly. when your child has to. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: totally, exactly. I know I feel for that little four year old.
0: Thank you, Dr. Liz, for your wonderful insights and reassurances. We are going to link to some more helpful and trustworthy information about kids and vaccines in the show notes. Dr. Liz also asked me to remind you, she sent me Marco Polo after our interview, that this is a great time window to get your kids a shot before getting together for Christmas time gatherings. Thanks for the reminder, Dr. Liz. If you found this episode helpful and you appreciate what we do, consider becoming a member of the show. It helps us so much. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. It starts at $5 a month. And if you're able to pay by the year, that helps us even more. Remember, Double Shift members get an ad-free show, monthly member hangouts, and other great perks. And we can't make this show without you. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our co-host is Angela Garvez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. Our producer is Olivia Richardson. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Jada Hester. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Pale Hound. Our mixer is Corey Shreppel. We are funded by you, our members. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of the Devil Show.